there's a question to what extent is this symbolic policy and what we sometimes I call a little bit like smoke screens in a sense, the illusion of political action that is not uh, linked at the same time with meaningful policies and transformative change. And this is a danger. You are listening to In Pursuit of Development with Dan Bannock. Since its inception in the international development discourse in the late 1980s, sustainable development has often been celebrated for its rhetorical appeal to political correctness. But is it a useful tool for global development? The idea of sustainable development has not only acquired new layers of meaning over the years, but it has in many ways also witnessed a rejuvenation since 2015 following the adoption by world leaders of the 2030 Agenda and its accompanying 17 Sustainable Development Goals, also known as the SDGs. These SDGs, grouped under overarching themes such as people, planet, dignity, prosperity, justice, and partnership, have often been praised for a strong articulation of an environmental dimension, in addition to breaking new ground with the global goals on inequality, economic growth, energy, and peace. Despite being imperfect and highly ambitious, the SDGs are the result of a comprehensive participatory process unparalleled in the history of global development. Indeed, while its predecessor, the Millennium Development Goals, or the MDGs, focused exclusively on low-income countries, the SDGs encompass a much broader agenda that applies to all countries. By closely linking sustainability with development through the principles of universality, integration, and leaving no one behind, the 2030 Agenda has been much celebrated in activist, business, and policy circles as a means to stimulate a radical shift in world affairs. But the SDGs have also been criticized for their unrealistic ambitions and lack of focus. The world was already off track in achieving many of the SDGs before COVID struck. And now there are major concerns over the extent to which these ambitious global goals can be achieved in the next nine years. To discuss the idea of sustainable development, and the added value of the SDGs, I'm joined by Frank Biermann, a professor of global sustainability governance at Utrecht University's Copernicus Institute of Sustainable Development. Frank is a leading scholar of global institutions and organizations in the sustainability domain. In addition to being a prolific writer, he also pioneered the Earth System Governance Paradigm and has been the founder and first chair of the Earth System Governance Project, which is a leading global transdisciplinary research network of sustainability scholars. We discuss the novelty of the SDGs, 
goal setting as a global governance strategy, political interest and enthusiasm for the sustainable development concept, and what constitutes earth system governance. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I've long been wanting to speak with you, Frank. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Dan. It's a pleasure being here, and thank you so much for inviting me. I want to actually start our conversation by asking you to, if you can, reflect over the concept of sustainable development, which, as you know, has been around for more than three decades now. And I was recently speaking to Grohal and Brundtland herself, and she was saying how it has taken 35 years to have this idea become a part of the mainstream discourse on development. And she thought it wasn't that bad. 35 years isn't that bad for a concept as perhaps controversial or important as sustainable development. So my first question to you, just to get this conversation started, is how important do you think the concept has been in shaping the discourse on development? Thank you so much, Dan. I mean, this is a very, very important question, and I'm discussing this with many of my colleagues and my students all the time. So I think um, in the beginning, concept was extremely important. It was extremely important to open up the debate in the 1970s and, and 1980s about uh, the focus on the environment, as it was so prominent in the 1972 conference on the human environment in Stockholm that launched the international governance um, movement in this area. And I think the concept of sustainable development was very important to link this deep environment focus with a focus on development, to bring in these double concerns of, of humanity and try to link it. I think that was an important development. Uh, then brought together also in this conference in 92 uh, in Rio de Janeiro, the Earth Summit, which was then linked in environment and development at that time. So I would say it was very, very important. On the other hand, and I think this is something we can maybe engage in a discussion about, I'm not sure to what extent it still has a very strong analytical rigor in a way, to what extent it has become a broad normative frame that everybody agrees with, but that's maybe not necessarily fully able to shape our politics and our political systems today. So other concepts have been put forward that might be more specific on certain normative frames such as the Anthropocene or planetary boundaries and all these other new terms that have been brought up that are using sustainable development as a normative frame, but that try to be sharper on certain other aspects that are equally important. And I'm happy to discuss this further. That is also my take, Frank, on, on this concept, which has become all-inclusive and perhaps has lost a bit of its rigor. Some of my colleagues, especially in the United States, would have said a long time ago that it never had any analytical rigor, that it was a wishy-washy concept. So what I find fascinating is how this long journey, say from 1972, the Stockholm Conference to the 2015 adoption of the 2030 Agenda in September 2015, how... I felt in many ways the concept was resurrected, you know, that it received a new leash of life. Do you feel that is the case or do you still feel that despite the 2030 agenda, despite the sustainable development goals, 
the the concept has still lost out on on more of these other newer terms as you just mentioned well i think that the concept has been still there and i think it is still important and it has been operationalized in the sdgs and the agenda 2030 i think that's the important part so i think the, the problem is the concept has been for a long time that uh, nobody was against it yeah i mean it's not a problem in the sense but for, for a problem for a concept that doesn't find any opponents anymore then you can question its value if everybody has it on their website and everybody supports it so the question is is this really the right um description of what we have to do. But the point with the 2030 agenda and the sustainable development goals is that here, the concept of sustainable development has found an operationalization. And I think this is a very, very important first step. And this is also why we have set up this research project at Utrecht University Global Goals Project that's much aligned also with your own research interests in Oslo. This research project where we try to study to what extent these SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, really make a difference in policies and politics today. So I think I'm, I'm not without any criticism of the SDGs. So there are certain elements of the SDG agenda that can be well criticized. But I think this general idea to operationalize the concept of sustainable development and 17 goals and 169 targets, I think that is a very, very important idea that I can very much support. In relation to that, you know, I just have to say that I really enjoyed reading your 2017 edited volume called Governing Through Goals, Sustainable Development Goals as Governance Innovation, where you and your co-authors trace the evolution of the term and you describe aspects such as uh, norm promotion, rulemaking, you know, where there were agreements on regulatory arrangements and rules, procedures to ensure compliance. And then there was this comprehensive agenda of multi-stakeholder goal setting and you do a very good job in the book of making the point that perhaps one of the most important outcomes of this long process, this evolution of the concept, is moving from this environment slash development to environment and development, acceptance of this interdependence of environmental, social, economic dimensions. So it's it's been a long journey, and I want to pursue this matter a bit further, Frank, if I may, and that has to do with the impact of these major UN-led conferences. You mentioned Rio, and there have been, of course, Rio Plus 20, and, and of course, more recent co- meetings and conferences. If you were to reflect on these high-level and these huge uh, gatherings of world leaders and delegates, what would you say has worked and why? Has there been enough ownership? It could be in relation to, say, the Millennium Development Goals. It could be the Sustainable Development Goals. I'm just trying to get a sense of whether the concept has has resonated with world leaders. Who has shown, like you think, the greatest interest in that idea of sustainable development? Thank you so much, Dan. A very, very interesting question. Let me start with the one question about the impact of global summits. I mean, this is, of course, a question that is widely discussed in the community with these people who participate in these big summits where thousands of people are quite often with a huge carbon footprint travel to faraway destinations to participate in these conferences. And there are some people who say conferences such as the Rio conferences are useless. I mean, these people exist and they argue that there's not much outcome. 
This is quite often the argument by journalists who expect that in these two or three days of high-level segments of such a conference, the world is changing and becoming a better place immediately. And then you have this climax before the conference where everybody has these huge expectations. And then afterwards, there is the hangover, so to speak, uh, that everybody goes home and the world is a bit better maybe, but certainly has not been fundamentally transformed to a better and more sustainable place. And that leads to the criticism of these conferences where people say they are useless. I disagree with that because I believe that conferences such as the Rio conferences still have an impact because they bring together the community, they force decision makers in governments, in also civil society, also in the United Nations system, they force them to get together and produce some type of results. The results are quite often debatable, they are not the strongest, but I would believe that without the external pressure of having a summit at regular moments of time, uh, without this pressure, we would probably have even less progress in bringing about new institutions, stronger regimes, stronger targets, stronger goals. So I think I am still, despite all criticism that I share and that I have also published about, I still believe that these summits are very important. And I, I mean, uh, for your neighboring country, I would be very much hoping that the Swedish government is organizing something big next year to mark the anniversary of the Stockholm 72 conference uh, in, in some big fashion. And this is not 100% clear whether it will happen. And I very much encourage also all decision makers to help the Swedish government to organize a big event in Stockholm and make it a big success. This is one part. The other part is about the SDGs. And this book that you referred to in 2017 was a little bit a unique book in a way that uh, it was written while the thing was happening, so to speak. So it was written on the go. Uh, so we published, we, we wrote our chapters while the SDGs were still negotiated. And the book in itself reflects the state of, let's say, 2016, which was very, very fresh when the SDGs were out. But our group at that time was fascinated and intrigued by this novelty of the SDGs, of this governing through goals. It is, of course, not 100% new. I mean, as we all know, and everybody, many people have pointed out, we had the Millennium Development Goals, we had other development goals, we had different types of goal settings in uh, environment and development and sustainability governance before. But we believed at that time that the SDGs are new in the huge ambition that they have. So it's not only like the MDGs eight goals, it's not only about developing countries. It is a set of goals that is all encompassing and is supposed to bring together all countries and all countries are supposed to implement them. Um, so this is a tremendous ambition and we were interested at that time and still we are interested whether this normative agenda changes behavior of governments and decision makers to some extent in, in the direction of the SDGs. Uh, and then, of course, I mean, there are certain other elements of the goals that are not legally binding. There are, in many ways, they are rather qualitative and not quantitative, so they're difficult to measure in a way. So a lot of measurement has to happen right now in the setting of indicators uh, that are supporting the, the targets and make them measurable. And so there's a lot of politics also. So but now the big question is where this type of governance that we have 17 goals for the entire breadth of human activities that these kind of goal setting processes can really shape political processes. And this was 
we laid this out in our book. There was a motivation for that book. We participated in the negotiations of the SDGs at that time. And now the challenge for the research community is to analyze to what extent these SDGs really had any effect since 2015. And this is the core of the Global Goals Project that we have set up at Utrecht University. And we are working here also with many partners in different places. And we very much hope also to involve you and your group in these activities. We try to bring together a research community to discuss these, um, to discuss to what extent um, anything has changed since 2015 because of the goals. Because lots of things have changed in a variety of directions, of course. But what is the effect that goals really had, the global goals had on governments? on businesses, on civil society, and on individual citizens. This is the big question that lies before the research community. And, and I don't have an answer yet. I have certain first results, but uh, this is an ongoing research project that we are working on. And I think it's tremendously important to understand whether governing through goals has any impact and any effect on politics. I liked your point about these summits. and. My impression, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that sometimes these summits actually also function in the way of reaffirming the world commitment. Say, you know, if, if something has been adopted and then two years later world leaders meet, and if it turns out that that commitment was not getting the kind of political traction that it required, when you meet two years later, and reaffirm that commitment, maybe that could push the agenda. That was, I suppose, the case with the Johannesburg meeting that in many ways reaffirmed the importance of the Millennium Development Goals. So uh, do you think that to be also an important function of summits, that it sort of uh, brings the world back on track if the world is off track? Absolutely. I think that is, it sounds extremely boring, especially if, if students, for example, if they are looking at the United Nations Declaration and you look at the preamble, reaffirming, reaffirming, reaffirming. Yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I mean, students said, what are these guys busy with? I mean, it's so boring. <laughs> I mean, how can you change the world? I mean, oh, but I think it's important. I mean, this is how diplomacy works. This is how governance works. That governments get together and it's not random. Of course, there's a lot of discussion and negotiation. What are you reinforming? What are you strengthening? What are you referring to? So in this diplomatic, complicated, legalese and UNese and boring language, there's a lot of politics involved. I think this is important. It's not the change of the world, of course. It's not, I mean, I mean, if you're going to the higher political forum, it's not that this is really kind of biggest step, but it is part of the game. This is how we run our countries, and this is how we run international governance, and we have to move forward. Of course, we have to move quicker. I mean, there are lots of proposals in our community about how to improve global governance, how to make it more effective, more transformative. But uh, I think this one function of summits to bring it together is very important. And the point is very much to manage the expectation of these summits. There are sometimes, as I mentioned, this huge expectation that leaders are traveling to Rio or leaders are traveling to Stockholm or Johannesburg or to New York, and that because the prime ministers are there for two days, that this will immediately lead to a tremendous change. And this is not happening. This is, we can't uh, imagine this and expect it necessarily. So, and, and if this expectation is lower, then I think that can be quite impactful.
Returning to the 2030 Agenda and the 17 Sustainable Development Goals, Frank, do you think it is a game-changing agenda? Well, I'm asking you this because a lot of people have criticized this overload of obligations. There's just so many things going on. There are so many multiple agendas out there on climate, on development finance, and then on the SDGs. So some would say the SDGs perhaps represent a a convergence of all these development agendas. And others say maybe they're like a, a la carte menu of goals and priorities which countries can pick and choose from. So do you think it is a game-changing agenda and, and the kind of theory of change that is built into this document, which can be a bit boring to read, is it really radical or is it like summing up all the stuff that we've been doing for the last five decades? I mean, this is a very, very important question uh, again. I mean, the agenda and the SDGs have been written by governments, essentially, and by humans in a sense. So, And that means, number one, they're not necessarily consistent in, in many ways. I mean, it's not. I mean, sometimes you read these critiques from, from a legal perspective, for example, uh, when lawyers point out how they're all kind of uh, inconsistencies in these uh, in the goals. And this is kind of quite understandable, given the process by which they have been agreed. In terms of game-changing, I would say the ambition is very much in the agenda. So if you look in the text of the agenda itself, it has this tremendously, I would say also novel language of transformation, uh, stronger than it has been in earlier agreements, probably in declarations. Uh, the SDGs themselves are quite often more, more modest and more, more um, in, in many ways. I mean, some of them are, of course, I mean, the eradication of, of hunger, for example. I think it's, it's a radical statement. Many others are less radical. I mean, there are commitments to plain economic growth. And it's uh, debatable. And there's, of course, many people out there who say that just plain economic growth is, is the wrong indicator if you want to pursue a sustainability agenda. So it's it's a mix. In that way, it is it is a mix. The problem is game changing. Uh, if you the game changing question is also um, to what extent they had really in effect. One is of course cherry picking. Of course it happens. I mean we do research on, for example, how business actors are responding to the SDGs. And of course there is a strong opportunity to just pick the one or the other target that you are implementing anyway, or that doesn't mean much, or that is very qualitative, and then just say, we are engaging with the SDGs. The same is also the possibility for countries. Uh, we did research, uh, for example, it's also not, not, not uh, a secret that some countries understand the SDGs as a part of their foreign policy agenda. I mean, OECD countries are doing this sometimes, including the Netherlands, where the SDGs are being perceived as part of foreign policy and not necessarily strongly enough as part of a transformative agenda for the own country. And that is also, in a way, a process of cherry picking. Or what we also found in our research so far, it's all preliminary, we are still working on the publication, so I have to be very careful what I'm saying here at this point of time, but the publication is all forthcoming. But one point is also that some international organizations, for example, who are very strongly involved, they have been very strongly involved in the shaping of the SDGs, they can implement SDGs because they have shaped the SDGs in the first place. I mean, we call this bi-directionality, so that important actors or important communities helped to write the SDGs, and therefore they easily can claim that they implement the SDGs because they wrote them in the first place. So that's also then a question to what extent is that really steering effect? 
SDGs have? And to what extent is it rather just a mutual um, uh, congratulatory uh, process by which everybody is, uh, is happy by implementing everything else? And uh, it's kind of the mutual kind of uh, clapping on the shoulder community. Frank, can you provide some examples of of these actors? Uh, we had uh, we had looked, for example, um, on the International Labour Organization, for example, which had already um, uh, um, engagements and um, work in the direction of the SDGs, but has also been very influential in in helping working on the SDGs, and therefore also is to some extent easily supporting the SDGs. So this is what we mentioned, this directionality. We will publish this paper very soon, that the steering effects are in both directions. It's not like they are the SDGs, like what a lawyer would say. There's kind of like the, the legislative body has agreed on the SDGs, and they are then implemented by, by actors. Uh, but it's also that organizations have helped rewrite the SDGs and influence them in the first place. So therefore, there are lots of debates about to what extent are they really having an effect. We'll also look, for example, at institutional change. So many countries, for example, they're setting up certain uh, institutional bodies to implement the SDGs. But the big question is really to what extent is this really also changing political behavior? Um, does it change the allocation of funding? Does it change um, the national legislation, national programs? Does it change uh, the way how international relations are being conducted? I mean, this SDG 10, for example, on inequality, does it change the way how countries are addressing problems of global inequality? And that itself is a fascinating question to ask. And I've actually been asking this question to NGOs, civil society organizations, whenever they invite me to give a talk, or other actors, I ask them, how has this agenda and how have the SDGs changed the way in which you work? Has it changed the kind of silo thinking that had characterized your work all these years? If you're interested in one sector, are you now paying more attention to other sectors? Are you actually talking with each other? Unfortunately, Frank, I'm often met with silence. There isn't much of an answer. And, and I think that is really the crucial question, or, or in, in terms of answering the question about it being a game changer or not, I haven't found very much evidence in relation to, to organizations really radically changing their, their mode of operations. It seems to me, and it'll be fascinating to hear your thoughts. It seems to me it is a lot of it is business as usual, except the private sector, which for me has really been the big businesses mainly. They've embraced the SDGs to such an extent. I've never seen the private sector show so much enthusiasm for development. But the more I, I speak and interact with business actors in India, China, in Africa, in Norway, wherever, the United States, there's one common theme that I've identified as being crucial in explaining the enthusiasm, and that is the extent of profits that the SDGs offer. So it is without that profit-making incentive, they say, you know, they wouldn't be as interested. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, I agree on, on, on both points. I mean, the first point, uh, your experience was talking to representatives of organizations, government, international organizations, whatever, 
um, that there's not that much integration. It's also reflected in our research. I and mean, for example, we did some research, um, substantial research on, on web links, hyperlinks. I mean, so, I mean, international organizations have links with other international organizations through their websites. Uh, and we believe this is meaningful, meaningful in a way that uh, once uh, an organization is citing another organization through a web link, this is not a random choice by some webmaster. This is really representing uh, a type of cooperation. So you really work together because you kind of refer to another organization because it's part of your program or your program is part of their program. Anyway, so this is what we analyze. So we, we mind the web. We, we mind uh, the entire internet, more or less. And, and, and want it to be expected. So if the SDGs increase cooperation among international organizations, you would find this reflected in the links, the hyperlinks. So the internet should reflect this over time and we didn't find any change. And we find some change, which is still to be published in a sense here and there, different uh, new alliances have been formed maybe, but we did not find a substantial integration of international organizations around the SDGs that you would expect if you would believe the 2030 agenda. One has to say, of course, uh, it is, uh, that is kind of this famous quote of Chu Enlai, who was once asked reportedly uh, what he thinks about the French Revolution. And he said, it's too early to tell. <laughs> so, so that's a little bit, of course, the case with the SDGs as well. So, I mean, that just, we do our research right now in, in, in 2021, can still mean, of course, that in the next years till 2030, or maybe even in the longer term, there is a reorganization, realignment of international organization or governments or other actors. So, so I'm very, very careful also as a scientist. I don't want to, to over-interpret our results, but they're very much in line with what you had said earlier. For industry, um, yeah, I mean, this is, of course, uh, the SDGs are broad in many ways. Uh, I mean, there are goals or targets on, on, on economic growth. And if you say, well, we are producing economic growth, there are targets about employment, then you say, well, we support employment. Right. So it's technically, if you have a very, very sophisticated public relations department, it's very easy in a way to pick a couple of targets and say, we are implementing the SDGs. It becomes more difficult if you take the entire set of SDGs more seriously and take them as an integrated whole, for example, you look at um, the SDG 13 about climate decarbonization, you look at SDG 10 about inequality, you look at gender, you look at uh, the eradication of poverty, and I think then it would be more difficult for some companies to really argue how they have advanced inequalities, how they have advanced the eradication of poverty. Um, so I think that's more difficult. Uh, this is a question that we as researchers and definitely also a question that civil society has to ask when business actors are claiming that they're um, uh, accepting, embracing and implementing the SDGs, civil society has to ask, what do they actually mean? Is it cherry picking? Or is it a meaningful engagement with 169 targets and all the 17 SDGs? And this is a big question that needs to be asked. Um, but again, one has to also say it's just a couple of years. We have to see also to what it means, a change. Just at one point before I forget, the one thing is, of course, with industry, you find change. I mean, you find, I mean, most 
larger corporations have a sustainable development officer, of course, and they have a, a certain group of people who work with the SDGs and are trained and quite often graduates of our universities. But the question is, what does it mean in the larger set of huge corporations with millions of people working there? So it's quite often, the question is always, is it symbolic? Is it symbolic policies? Is it SDG watching or is it meaningful? Interesting. In some of our work, we find that, at least say in a Norwegian setting, and also in some of the other countries that we've studied, like India and China, it is the big companies that have firstly embraced the SDGs. There's considerable SDG talk. They mention it in their reports. It's been mainstreamed in the governance structure, their CSR reports. Uh, so, so the big companies show interest. It is the smaller companies that often don't find incentives enough to do so. That's one set of issues. The second has to do with our criticism sometimes has been that, you know, there's been this tendency of SDG proofing everything. So it is a bit like, you know, in the old days, a lot of my colleagues would um, tell me that every time they wanted to apply for donor funding, let's say, if they were based in in an African country and they wanted a donor to fund their project, they would have to mention poverty reduction, good governance, you know, human rights, it is uh, gender, climate, smart agriculture. These buzzwords had to be mentioned as often as possible, otherwise you wouldn't get money. And so one of the findings we have is that in terms of businesses and also many other actors, there's a tendency of SDG proofing everything. So everything they do is is in line with the SDGs. But when you really get to the nitty gritties and you ask them, how have you operationalized this and not just simply embraced a goal, the, the response isn't as nuanced as you would expect. So I want to move on to something that I know you've been working on, Frank, you and your team, and I really enjoyed reading your work on governance through goal setting. These ambitious goals, whether they are the Millennium Development Goals or the Sustainable Development Goals, these norms that guide behavior, internationally agreed norms, some sort of shared expectations of what governments and, and organizations should be doing. They, of course, do symbolize some sort of a social and political priority, which is why they're called goals. But what is also interesting about these is the fact that they're time-bound, right? So they're quantitative, maybe outcomes, they're some sort of benchmarks, they measure. But you've also highlighted how the uniqueness of these global goals is the fact that they're often non-legally binding global goals. They're non-confrontational goals. They're often country-driven. They are perhaps detached from the international legal system. There are no formal obligations. So a lot of it is very voluntary. So Frank, in terms of your research, how useful do you think these global goal-setting projects are? Are they really a very novel strategy? Does it help to have these goals at a symbolic level, or do they also serve some other purposes? Well, I mean, certainly, um, you're, you're fully right with all the, the points uh, you mentioned, which can be, be framed as, as a critique of the goals, of course. To what extent they are, relating to the earlier discussion, to what extent they are changing, uh, transformative, whether they have a transformative impact, it's still, I would say, an, an, an open uh, question that we are analyzing. So one has to see to what extent, I mean, I believe in novelty. I believe that they are novel, not they are not the first goals, but in their comprehensiveness, 
and and in their claims this is certainly novel um different from the mdgs for sure different from some earlier goals especially also with their focus on the industrialized countries so the official ambition and the goals are certainly bigger than it has been in earlier efforts whether they are changing is is an open question and they will definitely have some impact i mean i'm sure that wherever country you look at i mean they will find some change to the better i would believe um that is the good news i mean despite the fact that we still have this result the question is then is it sufficient to bring about sustainable development come back to the early discussion and really halt this major negative transformation that we have on our planet of poverty of climate change of biodiversity depletion etc etc um so the question is is it efficient that's sufficiently effective to 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 really steer our societies in the right direction to, uh, that's number one the other question is a bit um whether they have negative impacts also and this is also a question to what extent do they create and this is one question we are analyzing so very very precise to to the, the audience here it's not research findings just hypothesis no but let's let's assume that they are not game changers in in a sufficient way that there is some positive change but not enough to really uh, steer society sufficiently in the right direction so is there also a possibility that they have a negative effect a negative effect could be hypothetically that sdgs are creating the impression of action that means you talk to the prime minister you talk to your king you talk to parliament you talk to politicians you talk to the multinational corporations and they all are doing something they're all doing something with the sdgs they have an sdg officer sdg department sdg um, rules they have a program on the sdgs they have an advertisement campaign they have the sdg flag flying in front of their main building uh, they have uh, speeches and webinars etc etc so you give the impression of action you give the impression of a huge programmatic effort of leaders wherever they are um in these directions of poverty and equality and climate change etc and that people are relaxed and say it's good i mean my prime minister is working yeah. my prime minister is doing something because every sunday there's this fantastic sdg speech and they have this great sdg flag and i'm supporting the sdg and people are getting content with politicians so there's a question to what extent is this symbolic policy and what we sometimes i call little bit like smoke screens in the sense the illusion of political action uh, that is not uh, linked at the same time with meaningful policies and transformative change and this is a danger that certainly is a possibility so the danger is sdgs are not sufficiently effective that's number 1 and number 2 is they're not sufficiently effective and at the same time create negative effects by creating an illusion of policy and illusion of change and illusion of efforts that is not matched by realities uh, and this is also something that we have to analyze in our work is there a smoke screen effect is it kind of um illusionary institutions illusionary goals that help actors to hide in action I'm really glad that you mentioned that Frank because I remember attending the 
high-level political forums in 2018 and 2019 in New York. And I was struck by some of the debates that took place and some of the sessions I attended. Every time I tried to raise what could be perhaps perceived as being somewhat uncomfortable in terms of asking difficult questions about, you know, whether the SDGs are imperfect, whether there are certain things that can be changed, whether there are some problems in the way in which development is conceptualized, the fact that development is a contested notion that very many different understandings of development exist. There are all kinds of problems in relation to, you know, this understanding, the definition of sustainable development about current generations and future generations and their needs. All of these things, whenever I try to raise them, even among scholars who attended those sessions, I was seen to be the odd man out. It was the, the, the reaction was very similar to what I hear from business actors saying, you know, all these academics, they're always trying to find problems. Now that we have finally agreed on this ambitious agenda, we all agree. Let's do it. Let's not poke holes. Let's not question. And I often found that I was the one, I was often the only one in some of these settings asking these uncomfortable questions. So but I feel like as academics, we should be poking holes into this argument because development is contested. And when we discuss these with politicians in India, they say, you know, we can't really think about, at least not all politicians, some say we can't really think about future generations. We have to think about all the problems we currently face. You're talking about the global goals are fifth floor issues. We are still stuck in the first floor. So I, I'm glad you mentioned that. And so that was a bit of a rant on, on, on my part. But going back to you, you're the guest. One of the many things I like in your work is how you highlight the role of weak institutional arrangements for the successful achievement of these global goals or whatever we've agreed on. And this reminds me of what uh, Bill Easterly you know, said in critiquing the SDGs uh, a few years ago, was it in 2015? He said that they are, they are, um, are garbled, they are, uh, they are dreamy, they are just a high school wish list. And if you have 193 leaders agreeing on something, then it has to be very weak and unimportant. But all the, the fun stuff is taken out. And you seem to, in some of your work, allude to the fact that the only way in which this will work is by having weak institutional arrangements where, you know, there's a lot of leeway to governments to do whatever they wish. They're free to interpret how, how to do this. What is your take on that? I mean, can we have even stronger institutional agreements, uh, arrangements? Because the high level political forum, in my view, has been a, a disaster. <laughs> Good. Uh, yeah. First of all, I, I fully appreciate and, and enjoy your rant and your experiences <laughs> in, in New York and then poking into uh, civil society and academic debates at uh, at uh, this this venue. I think it's, you're, you're fully right. I very much support it. And I would really enjoy uh, listening to you poking all things. <laughs> um, uh, so, in terms of institutions, I mean, the question is, I mean, the SDGs. Uh, at the current state, they have to work with institutions because this is the institutions that we have. So these these they are, and and, and that's the situation. And this was our, it still is our hypothesis. Can uh, goals work with such a set of weak institutions? And this is what we analyze. My feeling, and it's always been, I mean, I've always argued for stronger institutions for the last 20 years I'm doing this. And this is actually what you mentioned before with implementation call is... Uh, 
uh, is a recurrent theme for the last uh, 20, 30 years when people on the one hand say we need institutional change, stronger institutions, uh, then others say we should not talk about that, we should rather work on implementation. And the result is, uh, for example, galloping climate change and lots of other issues that have not been resolved because I believe institutional change has been too slow. So, for example, on the High Level Political Forum, we had in the Earth System Governance Project before the Rio conference in 2012, we had brought together a group of 33 uh, leading scholars from the Earth System Governance Community, leading scholars of international relations. Uh, and, and we thought about what can we really contribute to the Rio conference and one proposal was not only from us but we support this very much uh, to go for really like a much more high level council in a way in the UN system that has a much more power institutional power than what the high level political forum now has in a sense so the forum was there to replace the CSD so it was the commission for sustainable development it was meant to be one step forward and now the question is, is it not one step backwards mm. <laughs> so from what, what had been in the CSD? In the CSD, I was uh, watching this for, for many years. I was participating in the, in the first CSD meeting still in the 1990s. Uh, and this was probably uh, regressing after some time, becoming less important. And the question is, well, this is not the same fate for the high level political forum. But again, here quoting John Lai, so it's maybe too early to tell. <laughs> so it's still uh, getting up steam. So just, uh, I think, um, uh, I have feelings, I have hypotheses, I have beliefs and expectations, but I don't have academic research results yet. I mean, so we have not really studied this. I mean, we, we couldn't study it enough because it is a too short a period of time to really make a confirmed statement on academic research grounds. But my feeling is, I mean, it's certainly not a game-changing activity. That's my, 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 my feeling it is now. So therefore, I think it's very much important to, yeah, to entertain the possibilities that more structural change international level is, uh, is needed in many, many ways. I think that we need to have stronger governance. United Nations have been set up in 1945, and essentially, in many ways, it has not been changed since then. And I believe that uh, we need to think about um, ways of making international institutions more powerful. Frank, I, I totally agree with you that it is perhaps a bit too early to conclude on how effective these institutions are and, and these arrangements are. But the fact of the matter is that we have nine years left and there isn't much time for the 2030 agenda to be realized. And despite the kind of challenges that we face now because of the COVID pandemic, the truth is that there was, you know, not much happening. We hadn't really made much progress. The world was off track before COVID struck. And so this goes back to the question about implementation and the challenges. So one set of issues that we've just discussed, of course, are the weak institutional arrangements. But are there other issues that you would identify? And I'm thinking of lack of policy coherence as one, lack of integration of the goals, which has been a challenge for many countries. It could be lack of finances. And one of my pet themes is the lack of political enthusiasm in many countries, including in affluent countries. So how would you explain some of the implementation challenges that we face so far in, in terms of achieving the SDGs? Well, I mean, COVID is... Uh, it's just a perfect example. 
for policy incoherence uh, in a way. So governments are talking about the eradication of, of poverty. They're talking about uh, inequality and um, talking about all the fantastic language that you find in the Agenda 2030. But when it comes to vaccination, you buy it for your own country and you stock up vaccines to a tremendous degree um, so that we have a huge global inequality when it comes to vaccination. And this is an inequality in terms of life expectancies because many people will die because they don't have access to the vaccines and, and governments are engaged in a kind of a global competition of getting these vaccines first. I mean, I don't want to get too much in the details. So I think it's great in a sense in the European Union in, in, in a way that at least within Europe, that the competition has been kind of um, uh, reduced by buying it for the European Union and not letting the rich European countries uh, buy everything from the poor countries. So it's kind of a uh, way forward, but this should happen on the global level. So I very much believe that it's the obligation of rich countries to invest much stronger uh, in, in supporting uh, other countries um, in, um, in having access to the COVID vaccine. So I think in generally also, of course, I mean, the entire pandemic has a major impact also on the implementation of, on the SDGs. It has, of course, we all know also certain positive impacts on that's carbon dioxide emissions on the short term, of course, because we don't fly anymore. Traffic, uh, transportation has been reduced. But on the other hand, of course, the impacts will be pretty severe probably for many, many people. Do you think politicians actually showed interest in the SDGs in the first five, six years of its implementation? I think there's not much indication for that, actually. No? I mean, in terms of uh, really, in, in terms of, um, I mean, if you say before the COVID period, in terms of changing laws, in mm -hmm. terms of reallocating funding, uh, in terms of uh, engaging in new types of cooperation. For example, let's say the goals on eradication of, of the, the ending of hunger. Um, it's, it's, it's a tremendously important goal, of course, and it's uh, extremely uh, ambitious, it's uh, fascinating. But you would expect that, that there's change in, in terms of how our food is governed, how the allocation of food is changed, how waste of food is being uh, affected. Um, there's so many possibilities of trying to to address hunger in the world, um, and this would require change in terms of policies in rich countries, also in other countries. And and this I would not necessarily see. I mean, as I don't see a huge change in how policies are being conducted um, to achieve the the ending of hunger. But the same is also for well, I mean, of course, you have it for all the other goals. You see some change. The question is always, is it enough? I mean, like for decarbonization, for example. Uh, of course, I mean, there is a decarbonization process is, is on, ongoing in, in many places. But the question is whether it's enough and uh, on, on time. So, but I don't think that there's a huge enthusiasm of SDGs um, among uh, governments, for example, in a way that it's uh, it's certain to generate change. I don't, I mean, then it would be like in the sense that you have it in, in a cabinet meeting and that uh, there's really kind of an impact of the SDGs, how it affects national political programs and agendas. And this, I think, is very difficult to detect before COVID. And I think afterwards will be probably even less. So I don't think that uh, there's a lot of um, 
evidence so far that it has uh, met uh, sufficient enthusiasm from decision makers. That is also my understanding, except that I found that two countries, the two superpowers in Asia, India and China, have shown considerable political interest. At least the president of China and the prime minister of India went back home after the September 2015 UN General Assembly meeting and somehow conveyed to their subordinates, to their ministries, that this was an agenda that could be used. So there's considerable talk about SDGs now in India. They're operationalizing it, finding you know uh, local regional indicators, naming and shaming different states, uh, parts of the country, provinces, who's doing what and who's you know a front runner, who's a laggard on certain indicators, and so is China showing considerable interest. There's a lot of interest in green growth. And there are some countries like I find Rwanda, where there's a lot of interest. But generally, I don't find there's been political enthusiasm. So so I feel even in the richer parts of the world, somehow, you know, my impression, and I don't know if you agree with me, that, and I think you said this earlier in the conversation, that there are far more other important goals. And when I speak to foreign ministry officials, it seems that sustainable development or aid, etc., is not really the main policy priority of, of some of these countries. Let's move on, Frank, to a final set of issues, which is really related to your latest book. You're such a prolific writer. I'm in awe of all your publications. And and this really has to do with uh, the architectures of earth system governance, which is a book, I believe, that came out last year. And I, I, I recall, at least towards the beginning of our conversation, you said there are all of these other terms that have come up that have in many ways replaced or maybe made a stronger case for sustainable development or a different kind of development agenda than sustainable development. You mentioned planetary boundaries, and now we're also talking about earth system governance. So so, so what is earth system governance? And, and is, it, is it a totally new term? Is it governance and sustainable development in one? And how is it different from some of the other related terms on sustainable development? I mean, there's, of course, a, a huge um, rise of new terms that are replacing some of the older. I mean, that one term, and this is one thing where I currently work on quite a bit, is the new attempts of conceptualizing what used to be called environmental policy or environmentalism. And this was based on this, I would say, old idea, sounds maybe a little bit radical, but the old idea that there is an environment of humans. This kind of a binary conception, a dichotomy that there are people on the one hand and environment and or nature on the other hand, I think this is an outdated idea because right now, this is sometimes being conceptualized in the Anthropocene uh, idea um, that right now we have reached a state in planetary development in which humans are tremendously important in shaping planetary processes um, such as the climate system, ozone layer, species uh, diversity, and many others. In a sense, I mean, the entire planet is totally dominated by people. And we have to, so in a sense, there's not an environment that people can really protect and not an environment that people can respond to. It's all 
kind of part of an integrated social ecological system. And this is what we try to conceptualize in the term of system governance, so that it's not any more environmental policy, that there's an environment out there that we, that we, that we protect, but that there are integrated systems that bring together humans and non-human agencies in the climate system, in the ocean system, in the nitrogen cycle in biodiversity and in the food system, in water, and, and many other systems exist at planetary scale where people and non-human agents are integrated and interacting, and that we have to understand these systems from a governance perspective. And this means going beyond the old idea of an environmental policy, moving forward to an integrated perspective that is based on systems at planetary scale. And this was the idea of Earth system governance, which is kind of also related to other ideas that you have of people who talk about planet politics or Anthropocene geopolitics. And quite a few other terms are also being used. For Earth system governance, entire research community has been developed since the mid-2000s. It's called the Earth System Governance Project. It has probably been, it's probably one of the largest research communities in the social science in this field. It's part of other research networks such as Future Earth, where hundreds of people are getting together and trying to assess some of these questions. If you were to identify certain key building blocks and structural features of this, what would those be, Frank? Yeah, this was one of the, the questions that uh, has been addressed in this community. And this is what this one book that you mentioned is trying to, to synthesize the research findings um, is once you accept this post-environmental framing um, that uh, we are no longer just looking at the environment, but seeing people as part of the system that brings together social and ecological factors, then the question is about the institutional architectures, how they are organized. And this is, for example, if you look at climate, you have on the one hand, you have one institution, how climate policy is being framed, which is the United Nations Convention on Climate Change. But then you have also so many other different institutions that are all addressing this particular issue at the international level, also at the national level, you have it at the transnational level where private actors are working together in a variety of ways. You have science institutions and everything else. So all these institutions and actors are trying to work together in addressing the climate problem, the climate change problem. And we are conceptualizing this as a problem of architecture. So architecture is kind of this metaphor that we have chosen to describe the integration and also sometimes the conflicts among a variety of international and national actors that are all dealing with one particular issue. And this has been for the last 10 years a major research topic in the Earth System Governance community. And the book that you mentioned is trying to bring the findings of this together. Questions such as um, how can we explain, for example, change in complex architectures? Questions about the impacts that we have. So in a sense, you have different architectures and you can describe them in different degrees of fragmentation. So some might be more fragmented, some are less fragmented, some are more polycentric or say less polycentric. And the research question is then what are the impacts? What's the variation impacts of these different types of architecture over time? And that's what we try to analyze. And this is all part of this book that is relatively a conceptual in many parts has been written actually by, by many. So I'm just one of the editors together with my colleagues, Rakim, 
but we have I think 40 authors uh, that are participate have participated in, in in summarizing all these findings in this particular book. In terms of say concrete policy prescriptions, when when you just mentioned when you were describing the Earth System Governance Project, I was reminded of the Brundtland Commission's iconic 1987 report, Our Common Future, where you know it asked how are individuals in our world, in the real world, to be persuaded or made to act in the common interest. And it concluded that the real answer lies in education, institutional development, and law enforcement, and that many of the problems of resource depletion, environmental stress, etc., arise from disparities in economic and political power. So I thought that was uh, an important part of what the Brundtland Commission's report was highlighting. But what it also has done or did in 1987 was to highlight the role of economic growth, that it was about making sure that growth worked for the poor. It was about changing the quality of growth. In recent years, there's been, you know, there's a growing movement uh, advocating for degrowth and saying that it is not all about GDP growth. How does this fit into this, if it does at all, in, in this earth system governance framework? What is the role of growth? Because that, for me, is one of the key policy prescriptions and also an area of considerable disagreement among policymakers. What should countries be striving for? And to what extent should they be prioritizing economic growth? Well, thank you so much. I mean, this is, of course, I mean, all of what you mentioned is, is extremely valuable and important. I mean, also all what you, you referred to in the, the Brunner Commission, I think many of these issues are still uh, extremely valuable, like the rule of law and uh, also uh, strengthened laws and strengthened uh, legal frameworks, I think, are very, very important at the national and at the uh, global level. So I think um, whatever you read in the Brundtland Commission with certain updates here and there, I think is still extremely valuable. For the growth debate is um, I mean, the fixation, the fetishization of economic growth, I think is wrong. Uh, and the indicators that are used, in a sense, you you look at a, at a, at a newspaper or television program, news program, and uh, the welfare of a country and the progress of the country and the quality of a government, so to speak, is measured in, in GDP growth. And I think this is uh, totally wrong. I mean, this has been criticized a lot, of course, in the last 10, 20 years. I have not not the first to mention this. Um, we need different indicators. There are lots of debates about it. Partially, the SDGs, uh, despite all the criticism, are in the nucleus, in a sense, of an indicator. So you could take some of these targets as alternative measurements uh, for progress of a country and progress of the international community um, beyond or as an alternative to this fixation of, uh, global, uh, of, of, of the GDP. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I think it's also, um, I'm sometimes, I mean, I share a lot with the degrowth movement. There's no doubt about that. On the other hand, I'm not sure whether you it's sometimes perceived, um, I mean, people who support this are more sophisticated in many ways, but sometimes the degrowth movement is perceived as being focused on degrowth per se. And I think the focus should be issues that we discuss in the SDGs. For example, the eradication of poverty, health, energy for all, provision of water, and all the other issues that are part of the SDGs and the larger sustainable development agenda. Uh, this is what we want to achieve. 
So we want to ensure that people have food. We want to ensure societies that have a certain degree of inequality. You want to assure that climate is not warming for more than 1.5 degrees and all these other this these are the targets that we want to assure and many people believe that this is not possible with a major there's a continuation of economic growth the way we have it and i think there's some indication for that uh, on the other hand i think the target should be the welfare per se and whether it means growth or not growth or what type of growth is a secondary question so i and also i think that some parts of the degrowth literature and language um, might lack the potential to create larger supportive communities uh, in terms of getting that browsing the masses i mean there's a danger danger that it remains um, a niche concept that is not able maybe to uh, really um, integrate large parts of, of the societies um, because it's a negative message for many people perceive it maybe as a negative message. I've really enjoyed our chat today, Frank. Thank you so much for coming on my show. Thank you so much and it's such a pleasure to be on your show. If you enjoyed this podcast, please spread the news among your friends and share it on social media. The Twitter handle for this podcast is Global Dev Pod. Thank you for listening to In Pursuit of Development with Professor Dan Bannock from the University of Oslo Center for Development and the Environment. Please email your questions, comments, and suggestions to inpursuitofdevelopment at gmail.com.